Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 244 The Buddha Walks into a Bar. We're joined this week by Buddhist teacher Lodro Rinsler to explore his take on presenting the Buddhist path to a new generation. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm very stoked today to be speaking with. He's uh, Skyping in from New York City, and we're speaking today with Lodro Rinsler. Lodro, great to have you on the show, man. I'm glad we could have you here today. Thanks. It's, it's actually, it really is an honor to be on the show. I've appreciated Buddhist Geeks for quite some time, and I think what you guys are doing is really innovative in terms of making the Dharma accessible to people. So thank you. It's great always to speak with might call us next generation people. I don't know, uh, or you may sort of refer to us as the people who are, don't really know what we're doing and we're sort of trying (laughs) to figure it out as we go. But it's always great to speak to someone that's a peer, you know, in terms of age. So um, fantastic. And then I wanted to mention a little bit about your background and just share a little bit about where you're coming from. You're deeply connected to the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. Um, you're a meditation practitioner for many years in that tradition, also a teacher. Um, you uh, work at Shambhala International as the head of development. I imagine that probably means that you're like a money dude in some ways, or business dude. I am the most untrained business dude in the Shambhala Buddhist Dharma, <laughs> but it seems to be going okay, so yes. <laughs> Nice. And you're also, I guess, in your spare time when you're not working on that, you're writing, teaching. You uh, wrote a column or write a column, actually, in uh, Huffington Post called What Would Sid Do? I first saw it on the Interdependence Project blog. A really fun play off of WWJD. And it's totally different. Uh, So I'll just, you know, mention that it's not so much that you're saying this is how Sid would live, but rather you're kind of exploring interesting areas of how to apply Buddhist wisdom to life. Uh, which we'll get into. And I also wanted to mention your new book, which just came out. It's called The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, A Guide to Life for a New Generation. As you know, many of the people that listen to Buddhist Geeks are part of this quote-unquote new generation, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. And so one thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about with you is what's changing and what's not changing, what's staying the same. But First, I figured it'd be cool for people to hear maybe a little bit more about your background. In particular, how did you get into the Buddhist thing? Are you one of these, because I spoke to a lot of people that are in the Shambhala tradition, and many younger people um, had parents or friends or people that sort of introduced them to it at a young age. Are you one of these quote-unquote Dharma brats? Yeah, yes, I am. Okay, Um, good. You know, it's an interesting term because I feel like it it applied to all of us when we were like 5 to 10, and then at some point... Some of us actually got really interested in the Dharma, and it wasn't our parents' path anymore. It was our path, or at least that was my case. And uh, ideally, we became more Dharma practitioners, and those of us that didn't were the ones that really remained brats. I, I feel like you know there, it's an interesting process growing up within a Buddhist household, and you're raised within this idea that you're already basically good. You're already innately wise. And that's 
sort of an amazing thing to be raised with, that knowledge. So I started meditating, uh, as you said, at a young age. I did my first meditation program starting when I was 11. And then my moment of realizing that this was no longer, I wasn't a Buddhist because I was raised Buddhist, I was a Buddhist because it was me, was when I was 17 and I was doing what's known as the monastic Dantan. It's a one-month meditation program up at Gempo Abbey. People who are familiar with Pema Children would might know that a lot of what she does is supporting Gempo Abbey in Nova Scotia. And they have a annual program where people could go up 18 to 35, and they made an exception for me as a 17-year-old, and take the robes for a month. Take on your refuge name. Take on the precepts and really explore what that life is. So somewhere in there, I remember doing a walking meditation in my robes with my shaved head, complete silence for that week. And in the distance, there's these whales jumping in and out of the water. It was beautiful beautiful setting and I realized that my parents had never done what I was currently doing and I remember that distinctly as the moment where I realized that this was my path from then on I was practiced regularly and then attended many more long retreats and uh, went on to become a meditation instructor and so on that's cool so at a certain point it went from sort of the family religion or the family practice to like this was something you were completely owning as your own some way exactly and I feel like some people who were born into a Buddhist community have had that experience and some haven't. Right. And you can actually sort of tell when you meet someone who's raised Buddhist whether they identify as a family religion or as a meditation practice. How can you tell, like, just from the outside? You know, I think there's definitely the element of, when I made the joke about whether or not they're still brat, there's a lot of arrogance if you actually haven't had the humbling process of really having to sit your ass on the cushion for hours and hours and hours and deal with your shit. It's a very interesting process to figure out where that fine line is between growing up and becoming mature because you're growing up or growing up and experiencing the Dharma which matures you naturally. I don't think I could spot 10 people on the street and say, you know, these are Dharma practitioners. But I think when you actually sit down with someone and you experience a sense of humility or uh, gentleness kindness, like genuine kindness. They're actually interested in who you are and what you do. And they're a second generation Buddhist practitioner. I'm guessing they're practicing. Mm -hmm. That's a helpful distinction. And it's an interesting one because outside of the Shambhala tradition, you know, with quote unquote convert Buddhists, people that weren't raised in Asian cultures, the Shambhala tradition is one of the few I've run across where people who've gotten into Buddhist practice seriously have also been raised with it. So it's a really interesting subculture in that way. So it's cool to hear, you know, some of the distinctions within it. And then talking about your book, this was a really fun book. I wanted to get into some of the stuff that you talk about in here and also explore some generational differences. You know, you hinted at that uh, in that experience at Genpo Abbey where you sort of recognize, wow, this is my path. It's not the same as my parents'. There are probably many ways in which that's true. So looking at the book, Buddha Walks Into a Bar, this is not a, your normal Dharma book title, obviously, and it's not your normal Dharma book in terms of some of the metaphors that you use and some of the language that you use, some of the areas that you explore. You know, you're talking in here about how to relate to smartphones, how to work skillfully with one-night stands. There's some stuff in here that you just wouldn't find in a Dharma book written by someone of, let's say, the boomer generation. 
So I was wondering if what you're doing is similar in a certain way to someone like Noah Levine, who obviously is older than you are, but he also, you know, in certain ways is taking this deep, rich tradition that he had learned from his own teachers, you know, who are all older than him, and um, is sort of reinterpreting it, re-languaging it, re-understanding it from a new sort of generational worldview even, you could say. I'm, I'm wondering if you see what you're doing with this as being somewhat similar to that, or, or how, you, how you understand what you're doing with this book. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think one thing that you and I have in common is that we have a passion for trying to make the Dharma accessible. And it's such an interesting fine line, at least in my process, of writing this book, where you want to present what you understand of the teachings. And I, I say this in the intro to the book, that what that means to me is, you know, what I have been able to understand and experience as a result of my excellent teachers and my own process of trial and error as a young person. And actually take what you understand to be the Dharma and make it accessible without degrading it. So, you know, I'll be really interested to hear from people whether or not that's accomplished in this book. You know, if you read it to cover to cover and you think there's Dharma in there, wonderful. But... Yes. The interesting thing that you mentioned here with the previous generations, not unlike a lot of other people, I, my first Dharma books when I started to become a serious practitioner were stuff like Pema Children, Sharon Salzberg, people like that. And when you pick up, for example, Pema Children's, I believe it was When Things Fall Apart, the opening chapter is about how she went through a messy divorce. And as much as I experienced similar underlying emotions to that story through my own relationship experiences, I have never been through a divorce. That story in particular does not talk to me. As I continued to study more and more, I thought there aren't a lot of Dharma books out there that will actually say, okay, you're out there dating, right? It's not like you're going through a midlife crisis. You're out there doing your quarter-life crisis where you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. So it's that sort of angle of Let's take these traditional dharmic teachings, but let's really try and apply them to what we're already going through, including going into a bar on a Friday, Saturday night. If you're someone who is social and goes out and does that sort of thing, there should be no shame here. It's, the question then becomes, how do you take your meditation practice off the cushion and apply it to when you go out on the weekends? How do you apply it to your jerk of a boss or the fact that you realize your parents are crazy? These are not like midlife crisis sort of things. These are really issues that younger generation people might be dealing with. I mean, we'll see. I, I hopefully have done both, walked this tightrope of really trying to articulate what I understand of the Dharma and also trying to make it relevant without degrading it in a real way. Yeah, so yeah. I, I do feel like Noah and you know Ethan Nickturn and there are a handful of younger Dharma teachers who have come out with books who have done this. I would be honored to be associated in those ranks. Um, as you mentioned, there is one other thing, which is that they are slightly older than me. They're Generation X, and I'm Generation Y. Yes. And I don't know if you know this, but I happen to have a sister who is in the trend-spotting industry, and she uh, revealed to me that for a while within that industry, Generation Y was actually referred to not as the follow-up in the alphabet, but uh, the word, W-H-Y. Generation Y, as in referring to our supposed apathy. And something that's happened in the last five years is we are sometimes now referred to as Generation O, directly associated with the campaign and election of Barack Obama, but also, I would say, more under the heading of 
what that campaign stood for, which was change. The idea of, yes, we can. The fact that this generation, Generation Y, had not actually stepped up and said, okay, we can create social change. So I feel like that is the audience that this book is trying to address, the audience that is ideally trying to create social and positive change in the world. And my larger aspiration for this book is that it might provide some tools for people who can then become a little bit kinder or more compassionate and aid them in that work of social change through interchange. Nice, nice. And, you know, one thing I was struck by just um, looking at the book is that really a lot of what you do cover is in some ways traditional Dharma teachings and models. I mean, it's not like you sort of reinvented the Shambhala system. I mean, it's clearly connected to your teacher's teachings, and yet there's a way in which it's also very different. So it's so interesting to see people like you, people like Ethan, newer teachers recognizing the need the dire need to communicate these things in a, in a relevant way. Following up on that, I wanted to point out one small thing that I noticed and see what you think about this. At the end of the introduction, you mentioned that you would be really interested when you're done with the book, drop me a line. I truly want to hear what you think. Now that is a line that you just would not see in most Dharma books. Drop me a line. There's something about that that to me speaks to some of the differences in Generation Y and how we tend to interact with the world. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a really amazing question. Thank you. Uh, I put a lot of time into this thing, and I really genuinely do want to hear back from people. When I wrote that introduction, I actually started, tears came to my eyes at the end because I was trying to articulate in 10 minutes, essentially, on written paper what I was trying to do here. It goes through, you know, do you have to be a Buddhist to like this book? No, you don't. You just have to want to take a fresh perspective with your life and be interested in these sorts of topics. Do you have to change everything in your life? No, you're already a great human being. You just have to, this book might help you um, learn to work with your own mind. So when I hit that point, I actually genuinely want to engage with a lot of people. And it was this moment of realizing this isn't just me sitting here alone, typing something out and handing it to a publisher. It's the fact that by the act of putting this book out, I realize I'm now in conversation with everyone. And already it's been out for three days by the time we're having this conversation. And the beauty of Twitter is that people are sending me pictures of them reading the book, telling me what they think, asking questions. And it's been an incredible dialogue already. So I feel like in that sense, it's not like I'm doing anything incredibly unique. I think our time is incredibly unique. The fact that we can live in an age where someone can send me a picture automatically and tell me what they think about what they've read of the book so far, that is really amazing. And that's something that I hope will only continue to flourish. Nice. And, you know, I get the sense when I read books from some of my own teachers that in a certain way there there's a type of inaccessibility because I can't tweet to them for the most part and besides calling them and sort of infringing on their private lives um, you know that's the way it used to be there's a real clear separation pre-internet age of private and public and now like you're saying you know people that are reading your book can tweet you they can ask you questions and it's not that it's infringing on your on your intimate private life and yet there can be some sort of dialogue and that that just seems radically different in some ways so it's, it's really cool it is yeah and I was wondering, what other, what other major differences from your perspective? Because you're 
quote unquote in the trenches. You're teaching, you're practicing, you live in a major urban area. What differences are you seeing in how younger people, the sort of next generation, how are they practicing differently? I mean, how is it different from previous generations in terms of how this actually looks? That's a really interesting question. You know, I've been teaching a lot of programs specifically geared towards young people. I think that there is a tendency when you walk into a meditation center to look for people that are like you. Better or worse, you know, I mean, in some sense, this is our habitual pattern developed over lifetimes. But there is something to it that if you walk in and it's all white people and you're African-American, you don't necessarily see a place for you as quickly. So in the same way that if you're a young person and you walk into a meditation center and it's all people, 40s, 50s, 60s, you may not necessarily feel like there are a lot of people there that you can relate to. I mean, to answer your question in sort of a negative way, I I feel like there aren't a lot of young people being attracted to the Dharma at a meditation center, getting in there, as there should be, because there's not enough people out there showing up already. So I'm trying to spend a lot more time at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York just being there, not teaching. I mean, certainly I'll do that, but like, you know, just being there so that when someone comes in, they say, oh, there's like young people here. And they feel like there might be a community that they want to engage in. Not that there's anything wrong at all with our um, more senior Sangha brothers and sisters, but in terms of having a peer-to-peer connection, as you mentioned, it's so nice to actually have young people either teaching, staffing programs, you know, doing things like that so that you feel like there's a path ahead for you that involves people your age. So I'm not exactly sure what we're doing differently like young teachers or practitioners than the senior generation but i would say in some of these programs i've taught uh people love to talk about about their romantic relationships to be frank Mm -hmm. i would say my favorite chapter of my book if i may say so (laughs) (laughs) yes you may (laughs) it's like it feels weird to, to even talk about it um is chapter 10 which is sex love and relationships how can we actually take compassion practices and apply them to our long-term relationships so that we keep a fresh curiosity about this person that we're seeing year after year and acknowledge that they're actually changing and developing just like us? How can we keep an open mind and loosen our set expectations when we go out and try and meet people and go dating? And then how can we actually engage compassionate sexual activity? So to actually answer your question, and to a specific example, I see within the previous generation a lot of talk of, for example, what not to do. I mean, it's a perfect, great Hinayana concept. Refrain from these sorts of things to do harm, right? If you don't want to cause harm, abstain from sexual misconduct, right? I see our generation talking more in the positive sense. So instead of saying, let's abstain from sexual misconduct, let's talk about how we can cultivate sexual positive relations, It's taking some of the negatives and making it into a positive. We're going to engage this stuff. We're going to, a lot of us at least, have sex. How can we do that as something that is part of our practice, not something completely separate, that we leave our spirituality at the door when we hit the bedroom? So I feel like our generation is really interested in having that dialogue. Maybe the previous generation did when they were in their 20s. I, I wasn't there. But I would say that the more senior generation isn't necessarily having that sort of discussion right now. And then there's a similar one that that you mentioned in the intro, which is around social change. It seems like 
of course, you know, the boomer generation was very involved in social change, and yet there's an interest now in similar type of involvement in social change, or maybe it's a different type of involvement. Um, how do you see that playing out with Dharma, the connection between social change and inner growth or inner awareness? That seems like an interesting and perennial question. Yeah. I mean, I can speak from my personal experience here, which is, you know, when I was 18, I went off to college and in the first week, the September 11th attack happened. Right. And I remember very clearly feeling like our immediate response to, to do um, mass bombings, it just didn't feel right to me. And I was a month later protesting in the streets and I was young and didn't really know what I was doing. And there was a moment where the police knocked a, a guy to the ground and I suppose I'm actually violating a court order by even talking about it, that it was just a really inappropriate situation, and I ran in, and I was involved, and I was thrown in jail as well. I would not take that particular moment in time back. I would not have done that differently. But I realized, while I was sitting in jail for a weekend, that I wasn't living in line with my practices. I was actually creating a dualistic sense of, I'm good, cop bad, and my aggression and their aggression and all of our pain around these attacks and the responses and all of that sort of melded into this horrible situation where people ended up getting seriously hurt. So I realized that the alternative way of doing this is really actually to spend a lot more time on the cushion and really ground myself in reflective practices where I and I hope you know other people who are meditating feel like that they're really processing these sort of uh, knee-jerk reactions to political and social change. So it's actually coming at it from a larger angle. It's not just me and my role and my aggression. I feel like there are a lot of us that are trying to understand the underlying social structures and figure out how we can influence them. And for different people, they'll look like different things. Some people will go out and protest in the streets. Some other people will join the Occupy Wall Street movement, which is wonderful. Some people will infiltrate Goldman Sachs and try and be the kindest and most compassionate human being they can. And ideally, and I believe this, that they'll rise through the ranks and maybe someday, you know, be the head of a division and actually try and spread that culture of kindness and compassion within these large institutions. And I feel like there's a lot of different ways that we're approaching social change at this point in time. And, you know, the differences we've mentioned, you know, stuff around social change, stuff around technology, which we didn't really get into that much, but it's huge. Um, you know, Generation Y is in some ways the digital generation. We grew up kind of straddling between analog and digital and, and for the most part, you know, grew up with computers and had mobile devices now as we get into our early 20s and teens. And, you know, it's, it's a completely different world in a lot of ways for this generation. In what ways do you see the differences that we're working with as we practice, as we develop compassion, as we develop wisdom? In what ways do you see these differences in how we're going about it as being sort of merely generational? That is, every generation does it differently. And what differences do you see that maybe are, are kind of fundamental, like they're major differences? For example, the thing with technology I mentioned, I, I just can't see how that isn't a major difference. But I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that immediately come to mind. One, for me, and I'd be curious to hear what you think, is the fact that our generation of Buddhist practitioners has the best gift that we could possibly receive in the previous generation of Buddhist practitioners. Mm. 
individuals like you and I have received extensive mentorship. Really, we've been blessed that there have been not just our root teachers. I have obviously a personal connection to Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, who's my guru, but I also had the mentorship of half a dozen other Shambhala Buddhist teachers and leaders, in addition to other traditions. So there's, within these two things, an A and a B, there's the fact that we have a previous generation of mentors, and then the second aspect of that is that we have mentors from so many different traditions here in America. Mm. So that, you know, I can simultaneously look up to someone like Sharon and to Pema Chodron. The other aspect, as you mentioned, is the fact that we are a technologically driven generation. The fact that we can immediately communicate and share our knowledge, as paltry as that may be at times, uh, and learn from one another instantaneously. The amount of resources that are now online about the Dharma, the fact that so many of us are blogging and writing about the Dharma, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible what we have at our disposal. Whereas before, I mean, if you talk to the previous generation, they either stumbled across a dharmic book that they enjoyed or they didn't. And they went to a lecture or something like that. But it was somewhat, at least in my experience, when I talk with a lot of the teachers I look up to, it feels like it was happenstance that they actually stumbled onto the dharma. Whereas here, if you're mildly curious, you can get roped in so quickly. It's absolutely wonderful. Okay, cool. That's really interesting. Yeah, there's such... Uh, big differences and at the same time such similarities and I love what you mentioned about the benefit of having this amazing resource of mature Dharma teachers that have been around and practicing for decades I was just telling my wife the other day I said the next 10 years are like there's going to be the golden years in terms of being able to get really 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 good teaching and mentoring and then after that it's going to change so it's like we're, we're kind of in a perfect time if you're into Buddhist practice to like really be tapping some knowledge and wisdom. You know, there's one other thing that I want to mention, which just came to mind, which is that meditation itself is so much more accepted. The fact that people now know what meditation is and that it could be beneficial to them. It's not like an Eastern, otherworldly, hippy-dippy thing. It's a practical tool for interchange. People actually have now recognized it to that extent, so that you can now integrate it in a lot of other things, education, psychology, I'm on the board of what's known as Reciprocity Foundation, which is a homeless aid organization here in New York. And I was over there the other day, and I was giving meditation instruction to homeless youth between 15 and 25, you know? And they they get it. And, I mean, the fact that not only is there an organization out there that's treating these individuals like individuals, not just sort of a statistic, but they're trying to treat them holistically, and part of that is meditation practice, is phenomenal. So... I feel like that sort of opportunity to give instruction to homeless youth, it wouldn't have existed five, ten years ago even. It's like the idea of meditation as a mindfulness, stress-reducing tool is only on the rise at this point, and it will only continue to, and only continue to be more applicable to different organizations. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.